Welcome back to Talking Schmidt. This is Schmitty, the host of the podcast that tries to come out every Tuesday with a new interview. And today on our program, we have a special guest for you. It's not a special special. It's just he's a one of a kind dude that's helped the industry and has done much for all of us. His name happens to be Professor Paul Schmidt. I got a little care package this week from my good friend Phil down the street who happens to own a bunch of coffee places called Phil's Coffee. Coffee? For me? Every morning I start my morning off with a greater alarm. And many of you have bought me cups of coffee and can continue to do so. Right there at talkingschmidt.com forward slash shop, there's a little place where you can go and Click a button and buy me a cup of coffee, insert your Instagram name, and you'll get a shout out that day on mine. Even little kids in Mexico drink coffee. Beep, 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 News break. Speaking of Phil's coffee, oh yes, this week it has happened. Finally, a female has bought me a cup of coffee. Shout out to Emily Beth Grunder out in the 209 Stockton, California. Shout out. Thanks for the love. Hopefully you opened up the floodgates for more women to buy me coffee. Thank you. We have a new shop sticker on the backdrop of the backdrop that you can only see, obviously, on our YouTube. Society Skate Shop has donated a sticker for us. And with that comes a PSA from the good bro out on the coast timothy d my can i get some airtime public service announcement i'm in the garage my kids out front running around i'm standing on my skateboard like usual you don't believe me there you go i don't know if you can hear that that's my wheels me and greg took a little trip this weekend and went down to society but more importantly just like me and eric just taking a cruise with your homeboy taking the old school route down Ralston, down uh, Alameda, uh, to Holly, or down to uh, Laurel, and, and to Society. And uh, we met up with Ian, we handed off some shit. More importantly, my first impression back in the skateboard was getting love from Ian at the shop going, you know what, to tell you the truth, Tim, I don't care who's here, dude. When you're here, I just want to talk to you anyways. It made me feel killer. So to go back in there and check in with the guys, to set uh 
get them uh, some talking Schmidt gear. More importantly, the next day I went in and they hooked me up. I got a Rooka or whatever they call it. I know the, but it's got fish on it. It's going to be my lucky fish jacket this year. Shout out society. Support your local skate shop. Skateboarding is a wonderful thing. We love skateboarding here on the pod. Yep. Hey, if you're like me, you're enjoying the beginning of baseball season. The Giants out to a quick winning traditional start seven and two first place and the Warriors diving into the playoffs first round excitement in the Bay Area. Yep. Big shout out to Jerry Sue. Thanks for the sci-fi fantasy hoodie. It always gets me a second look when I'm walking down the street. Keeps me warm as well. Yep. Billions versus succession. What do you think? No. Nope. We're caught up on succession and we're just starting billions. Big shout out to everyone involved that was there, that planned, that prepared, that did anything to bring us the Lower Bob's contest, the Peastone third annual. Ron Bow defended his championship with another win. Fucking still flying high off that thing. Are you out of your mind? Those are the contests. I got to say, that was probably the best thing in skateboarding in a while. Wow. Oh, don't forget tomorrow, Wednesday, 420. Yes, it's Figgy's birthday. But this year, 2022, it's my pick for this 2022 Skater of the Year. Tristan Funkhauser is going to unveil his full video part from Baker on the Thrasher site where we will finally get to see the long bench Ollie at China Bank. Hell yeah. So excited for this and you should be too. And if you're on YouTube, go ahead and hit the like button and hit subscribe, hit share, get us more followers. We're not afraid of our audience to grow. And also, you know, don't believe the guy in the shopping market that tells you LaCroix are not hydrating. It's the biggest con job ever. It's just not true. There's a lot of people that read the headlines and don't read the article that follows it. That's the thing I learned this week. Big love to y'all. And now a couple little advertisements from some of our bros that live in the area. Hey, it's Corey at Blue Plate, 3218 Mission Street. Come see us. Meatloaf, fried chicken, deviled eggs, Dollar Olympia beers. We're here every day of the week. We got a garden and we got smiles on our faces. Come let us make you happy. Head on down to your local shop. Ask Blood Wizard Skateboards. Or visit BloodWizard.com. For all your pondering needs. Hello, hello. I'm Professor Schmidt, and you're listening to Talking Schmidt. Holy cannoli. It's cool, like tonight is the night. <laughs> yeah. Oh, big dog's in. Do we really want to be here? No, everything changed. We on? Schmitty? Talking Schmidt. Talking Schmidt, dude. <laughs> you're going to come out different. <laughs> shit, my pants, man. Your Rolodex is fucking deep. Holy shit. It's about the one, the one, the one. Who is this guy? He thinks he's tough shit. What's up? Come on, Schmitty, what the fuck? Tell the skateboard police to come get me. What is happening? I'm here for Greg Smith. Yeah! I 
All right, this is it, guys. We're raising the bar. How much more Schmidt could we have on one episode? Does it get any more Schmidt than my next guest? He's uh, definitely probably made at least one board that you've ridden, too. This is the professor, Paul Schmidt. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank Happy you. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm like a kid in a candy store right now. Just uh, getting ready to learn some stuff from you. And uh, yeah. Well, I'm here talking with a Schmidt who's not even a Schmidt. He's really a Smith. What's up with that story? <laughs> How do you become Schmitty when you're not even a Schmidt? I guess it's like a common nickname for people named Smith. I was like a, a, a little kid in baseball and my coach was like, come on, Schmitty, come on, Schmitty. He would just always call me Schmitty. And then uh, Peter Hewitt and Sam Hitt started calling me Schmidt sticks. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I know all about Schmitz because I'm a TT Schmidt, but my mom was a DT Schmidt. So I got Schmitz on both sides of the family. Mm. But TT is, is DT is like three times more common than TT. So TT is the uncommon Schmidt. And then there's Schmitz, you know, ending with a Z. Yeah. Different, different variants. You were originally from Florida, right? Yeah. That's where I started making skateboards was Florida. I actually started to ride in Wisconsin as a kid Oh, and lacrosse, Wisconsin. So I found a skateboard from the sixties in rural lacrosse, Wisconsin, crazy place to find it. Right. And I was, I was already into zooming and flowing because tobogganing on the hills in the winter was my favorite thing. Oh, really? You climb up a cow pasture up to that big uphill up there and ride a toboggan for half a mile or a mile. It was great. Uh-huh. Did that uh, encourage you when there was no snow to kind of just bomb down, like do the same thing on a skateboard? Yeah, it was so early on. I can't really say. I moved to Tampa, Florida when I was um, 12. Okay. And then I lived in a cul-de-sac with other kids that had skateboards. So then it was like, okay, well, now it's it's really on and it's happening, you know? Then Wisconsin, I had a urethane wheel board with open open ball bearings on it. And uh, the neighbors had had a, a clay wheel board from the 60s. They bought it a swap meet or something. That's what I started on. What, what made the Logan Erski so popular? The Logan family, a whole bunch of Logans, right? Uh, yeah. A whole bunch of Logans ripping on skateboards. And I had a Logan Erski. That was my first pro model board that I bought at Skatewave Skate Park. So it was kind of like the dude it represented more than the actual board itself was more trick than other ones of that era. Um, so there was a whole division going on there where there was the sort of surfboard-esque, flexy, that type of viewpoint. And what what the Logans really did is, is with solid wood, they're like, we ain't going flexy, we're going solid. And it, it gave a different ride. And part of this was that balance in between skateboarding transitioning from, from being so freestyle, you know, almost like dance related, you know, and basic transportation to being more aggressive with tricks and eventually leading into pools and skate parks and everything else. Right. Right. So were you kind of, did you have the build bug as a little kid before you even got into skateboarding or did skateboarding kind of like open up these doors and avenues for you or how did it all go? I was already a DIY maker, do it kind of kid, whether it was tree forts or go-karts or, you know, whatever, you uh -huh. know, so I built stuff. My dad ran a college theater and I would go help him build sets. So I had access to power tools there and we had tools at home as well. My dad made stuff and uh, just, you know, you got the willingness to try, then you try. 
Uh-huh. So that, you know? And nowadays it's like you can Google anything and get a plausible answer. Right. Right. Back then it wasn't very plausible. How does a table saw work? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, like, you know, what's the difference between a table saw and a bandsaw? Well, you had to go to shop class to know that stuff back then, right? Where now you can Google a pretty plausible answer. Uh-huh. Okay. Did you guys have a kick-ass uh, tree fort or something when you were a little? Like, a hand, handful of them for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love that. We we watch that TV show sometimes where the guy comes out to the house and makes the most killer tree no, fort. No, they, they were, these are two <laughs> buff tree forts, not like houses in like a tree. Like houses in a tree. The houses in a tree look pretty amazing. I like to go check them out and maybe stay there one night, like an Airbnb <laughs> or something, you know? Yeah. But no, I'm talking raw, crude, like build the tree fort. Then mom makes you tear it down because it's too dangerous up there. You know, uh-huh. that type of thing. So did you, you kind of grew up near Rodney Mullen or something? Was he so one in, of the... So in Tampa, Florida, I moved there in 75, you know, and um, Tampa's a two hour drive from Gainesville, which is where Rodney is from. Okay. And, uh, two of the, the last, you know, the last skate parks of Florida rainbow wave in tampa and sensation basin in gainesville and then obviously kona right kona's still there yeah so there was sort of this trifecta going to these events and places there had also been clearwater skate park but also been solid surf down in fort lauderdale you know so there were a variety of parks still in florida at the end of the 70s not many it was dwindling quick right but i think his sensation basin lasted longer than ours did I think they lasted another year. So it was definitely go up there more because we didn't have a skate park anymore. Uh-huh. And there, I mean, I'm guessing, cause I got into it later than you obviously, but um, in when I first started, it was for me, I'm guessing the same for you that when you saw a skater, it was just like kind of a rare thing. So you just, oh, yeah. kinda, you bond, you're like, Hey, what's up? What, what are you doing? No, exactly. I mean, very much, you know, especially in that era after the seventies, the first half of the eighties, when it was really like a no man's land, the the pro skaters and everybody of the seventies sort of dried up, went to college, you know, and then the, 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 the the kids who were old enough, not, not have to do that responsible thing. We were still just skateboarding anyways. Right. You know? And then, um, you know, for me, I, I had success making and selling products early on. So yeah, how early did you get into that? Well, I was making rails in 1978, and back then rails were known as grab rails, and they were for doing airs. And you right. got to this is when a board didn't have any concave to it. Okay. Right, so it's flat. So imagine trying to take a flat piece of wood and slide on it. Surface tension is horrible, right? Mm. And um, so, but the grab rails would be great for the air, but then when you try to 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 have the bottom of the board, they would grab and, and break off easy when they were wood. And Z-Flex made them out of urethane because they were for grabbing, so they were soft. Oh. Right? And and one day I went to the store of McGill and Gilfin, and Gilfin's nickname's already Ollie, you know? And he's like, hey, <laughs> if rails slid, that'd be cool. And I just believed him and made it happen. And were the first ones made out of the... What were they made out of? Were they made well, out of... First, it was wood laminated with formica on the top, and quickly that took too much work. And with wood I, screws or T- uh, wood screws. So okay, 
I remember my first ones had T-bolts. And then I think after that came wood screws. And then there was different variations of ones that like you don't have things on your grip tape, but they're not as sturdy and they kind yeah. of played around with it. Yeah. Yeah. It ended up being quite a production when it got to the point with sex bolts, T-nuts, all that stuff. Sex bolts. That's right. Yep. <laughs> I forgot about sex bolts. Huh. So did people, so yours were the first ones that actually slid? Well, I'm, I'm in Florida, right? I'm not in California, you know, at that time. And, but, but basically when uh, I, I had a friend, so I got drafted along by skaters all the way along, right? Like the name Schmidt sticks, it was applied. I didn't even choose it. Uh It was a skater across the bay. He made wooden rails already. And he was a pro skater for Kryptonics and his name was Steve Fisher. And he was a drummer in a band and, and the band sticks is big in the seventies sticks. Uh, right? You know, it's yeah, like, okay. Yeah. And that's where it happened. And so people just automatically call them Schmidt sticks. And like, it wasn't even a choice. It's like, well, those are fish sticks. These are Schmidt sticks. Wow. Okay. And then, and then just like the way the skate community is people contribute. Right. So, so the band he was in the lead singer in the band goes to the skate park one day, here's your logo. And he brings me the logo for Schmidt sticks. And it's like, well, what do I need this for? It's like, I'm in an art marketing class at USF. You need to have branding <laughs> in the name, you know? And it actually was sticks with two X's in it. So those were the first stickers that had two X's in them. So it kind of derives from the rock band, like that, the band stick? I mean, he was a drummer in a band and they got called sticks because he was a drummer in a band, right? Huh. You know? And, and then when I made them, just the competitive nature of, you know, across the bay, this skate park from Clearwater, Tampa, competitive nature, you know, because these skate parks I talked about, they would all have teams that would compete against each other. So it was a very like communal interact a lot, you know? Okay. You mentioned Alan Gelfand. Is he age wise? Like, were you around when he invented the Ollie or? Well, he lived in Hollywood, Florida. So I was in Tampa. So it's like a five hour drive. But when it was, when it was being created and happened, no, would he come up to contests and I'd see him do them? Yes. It was very magical and mystical. And he was the only one doing it. Yeah. Oh, wow. And then Fulmer, Fulmer quickly picked it up and then, you know, just like anything, an example gets set, people follow, right? Right. So it was kind of like a contest or, or would he do demos where they would come through your town or uh, there weren't really demos in that era. The demo was there at the skate park skating. I mean, yeah, that's, that's about it really. You know? Okay. Be more yeah. contest related. Um, but part of that thing I was trying to get to is the skaters guide you along. Right. So, so um, those guys, Steve Fisher and the band, they were a couple years older than me. Right. And then Craig Snyder, um, he, he, um, said, you, you need to go to surf expo with me. This is where they sell stuff. And he was shooting pictures for wave rider, skate rider magazine. So he had access to the show. And then at that show, that was January 79. And I'm walking around the trade show with my, my bag of plastic rails. <laughs> I met Tom Sims and Stacy Peralta, total heroes to me. It was totally rad, you know, but basically then it, it's cats out of the bag, you know? So it doesn't take long that everybody just starts making rails. If this kid here can make them at his house in Florida, anybody can make them. Right. Well, that's the case. All it takes is a drill press and tables off. Uh-huh. And or you can't them. you can't uh-huh. trademark something like that, copyright it, can you? Well, that would be a patent, not a trademark. Okay. Um, patents, first of all, you got to be able to afford to get one. 
and then truly get it, you know, having a, a useful patent. Okay. I know lots of patents existed for products that never even came out uh-huh. because someone patented an idea, but they don't care about making it work. So, you know, the only, the only patent I've had in my life is for a helium construction. I did and it. It didn't matter. The pat, patent gets in the way in skateboarding. So there's two patents in skateboarding right now that, that were never protected. And we're really glad they were not. And they weren't protected because a, it was cheaper to get the patent than it was to protect it. Um, but B, what just, what are you being distracted of trying to survive in business or fighting a patent? Uh-huh. You know, so that's why when you only see patent wars, it's big corporations, people, lots of money that can fight. It's not individuals. So Larry Stevenson uh, patented the kicktail. I think it was in 68. So the kicktail was patented, but he never protected it. Oh, skateboards were flat before then. Oh, he. Oh, wow. (laughs) When substance happens, unless you can work in it in total secrecy and and keep it there. It doesn't really matter. It's going to be copied, you know, and know what, you know, how good a product is that nobody copies. Not, not very, very good. good. <laughs> not very good. And it doesn't mean it wasn't a great product, but it might not have been commercially successful or nobody else was willing to work hard enough to make that product. Mm-hmm. You know, where for me, I made products based on what I wanted and what I thought, not, not on commercial or anything else. I just do what I want to do. Right. You know, so things, whether it was like foam core boards or turbines or radials, you know, right. I mean, even urethane rails. I had a urethane rail on the nose. It was a grip sticks. Uh-huh. I was going to use for it to slide. Yeah. It was, it was my version of the Z-Flex rail. Only it was curved on the nose. You could do sweepers easier. So that's what I was going to ask. Did you kind of like dabble with like, did you want to make lappers or nose guards or any of these other accessories? for the oh, So I made truck guards and I also made um, kinder grinders. Kinder. Is that like a coper? Like a coper. Huh. But they're made out of the good plastic that I make my rails out of, not like ABS or PVC or something. Oh, okay. Were those not as well received? So you did the well, rails. Well, at the time more? I did them, so that the truck guard wasn't as good as is like trackers design because trackers hung off the truck. Mine, you had to put screw holes in a board. Okay. You know, but if if you if you look at old pictures of Rodney Mall in that era, he used to use a truck guard to dance on the truck. Uh huh. Put grip tape on it. Yeah. And, and then kinder grinders. When I moved to California, <clears throat> Brad Dorfman. When I joined up with Brad Dorfman, he'd already gotten around to my plastics people and my plastics people got around him and he had all the kinder grinder material. I was like, well, that's my product. Well, no, it's going to be a vision grinder. Now it became a vision grinder. Like it was part of me moving to California, like, oh, he's going to take some stuff, you know? So how did that end up happening that you moved to California? Was there business involved or did you just say, I need to go to California because skateboarding's bigger there or like, no, I mean, it was, it was cycle in time. So I moved to California at the beginning of 85. But in 83, I started to sell boards. Oh. And, and, and these were boards that I made myself. Like in your I, garage? In your house, yeah. My bedroom actually is where the press was in that era. Oh, sick. Temperature controlled. <laughs> and what, was there concave yet? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I had concave with upturned nose, with corners on the tail, flip on the tail. I mean, the upturned nose is only three inches long. Yeah. At that time. But it was the start of having the concaves before were all very um, triangular and very uh, so concaves were deeper in the front, shallower in the back. That's why the jump ramp revolution broke all the boards. Uh huh. 
right? Because they weren't the weakest part was right in front of the back truck where the most energy is when you land a trick. Right. You know, who do you who gets credited for like making the first concave board? Um, so from my knowledge of concave, the first production concave board was the Jim Muir Dogtown triplane. Oh, okay. Um, and and then quickly that was followed. But but in Florida in 78 or 79, um, a friend of mine, a guy, Dave, Mike Daly, comes back from a contest up in like New Jersey or somewhere up there. And he has this board that's solid wood like a Logan Erski, but it's got concave in it because the guy took a skill saw and he carved out the center of the board wow. to have concave. Because So I talked to this guy many years later and um, he's like, yeah, well, when my surfboards were worn in and I had like my foot dented him in a little bit. I really like that feeling. And that's why he did that. Uh-huh. You know? So that that's been burned in my mind from that era, from that time. Right. Right. And then there's probably different ways to bend the wood in the beginning. They're trying to figure out what's, what's going to work the best, but also stay the strongest and, and work. Right. Yeah. So in general, it, it came to seven ply pretty quick. Some of the old boards you'll find there's five plies, six plies, seven plies, eight plies. Um, but seven ply became a pretty quick standard. Uh-huh. Because when you make plywood, it works better with an odd number than an even number. Hmm. Because you're trying to balance it from the middle out. Oh. And if you have eight, then these two match and then you have a different frequency. I mean, I've had I've made eight plies and six plies and five plies. And yeah, you, you know. never see an but, even number too often, though. It's usually like yeah. five, seven, or nine. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's more like if you if you went in the world of plywood and you looked at how they make plywood, that's the direction you get sent. Okay. However, in regular plywood, they would have the plywood strength. Is, the orientation is just like cross each way, right? And for us, it's um, 80% of the long grain is going longitudinal nowadays. Some, some boards are built 75%. But if you go back in the 70s, it was like 60-40. In the 80s, it was 70-30 percentage of grain orientation you know mm. so basically that 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 ollie guy who told me to make rail slide i had to chase making boards stronger the whole time by changing the grain orientation are uh, you're working with him as you're doing the no no stuff. what he unleashed on skateboarding meant i had to adapt, oh okay right? like, but i could see it i saw it i did it you know right oh man yeah but like even even in that one i actually credit chuck holtz for for breaking the mold on that because he, when he did the, the vision double vision board and he did um, thinner cross bands and proved that, Hey, we don't have to have all the plies be the same thickness. I didn't see that. And I wasn't working in the factory anymore. He was, uh huh. he did that. And then, and then when I did element feather light in the late nineties, um, working with Chris Markovich to satisfy his desires as a skater for lightness and stiffness and, and getting up the, the concave that deep and that strong. That was when I went to 80, 20. Okay. In grain orientation, but there's still seven ply either way. That was with Markovich. But before that there was foam Kevlar, right? Like the foam. trampula. Well, the, right. So there were foam core boards that I made in Florida so uh -huh. 83 to 85. I made some in California, but basically skateboarding got busy really quick and I couldn't be bothered 
doing what I wanted to do. I had to do what I needed to do. Yeah. You know, it was that kind of thing. Because uh, basically I've been here for like eight months and Brad Dorfman walks me into a 15,000 foot building. I'm 21. It's like, here, here's your new factory. I'm like, I go from a garage size shop up to this, you know? So there's a lot of work there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How many, but so did that happen right away? Like you, you go in and then do you eight get months, uh, eight months and I had the big building and was building the big factory. Yeah. And what's the crew? How many people are, I don't even really remember. I mean, 50, 100, I don't really know. Because the screen shop got moved into our building too. So it was the, the board printing was somewhere else. Uh-huh. When, I moved, when I moved out here, um, there were like, he was in 6,000 square feet of facilities and I was employee number 30, you know? And by the time I walked away when in 1990, it was a you know quarter million square feet of facilities and a thousand employees type thing. It was crazy. When you first started, were you, was it excitement or anxiety going from like your room? Oh, total to- excitement. Yeah. Oh, because the reality like is I, Florida, I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. Because in Florida, I, I'd already worked in a factory building sailboats, not skateboards, but been on the assembly line for years. Okay. Oh, okay. So I had that mentality of what that takes in an operation and seeing an operation. Right. And, you know, just always built stuff and made it happen. So is Vision the first boards that you're doing at high volume? Well, no, there were, was the Schmistics boards were the high volume. I didn't even build the Vision boards at first. Oh. Because I had was... to build the factory and get it working. Okay. But if, but if you look at the Vision and Sims skateboards of the, of the 80s, if they had square edges on them, I didn't build them. Taylor Dykeman did. Oh. They refused to make the edges round, and I refused to let them be square. I like this. Right? <laughs> and, 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 I mean, Pallet had round, round rails as far back as, like, 78. Uh-huh. And then, but then in that era, when they went to Bonite, they went to square rails, you know, which just weren't good for chinners, right? Right. You know? So that was the big thing. The round rail was, was chinners, but also chipping. Because in riding ramps, your board would slide upside down at the gaps and chip real bad. Yep. Were you dabbling it with wheels at all at, in, or no? Yeah. I never poured wheels, but I, I designed them, pad printed them, you know, did that side of it, made, made my wheels for, you know, the turbines and the radials and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so, so to be clear, when I moved to California, 80% of what I sold, I shipped to California. Oh. Brad Dorfman been selling my rails for years. Oh, okay. So I joined up with Dorfman because um, I'd already been trading money with him. Business was good in that scenario. You know, I needed to change. It was clear that I wasn't going to grow out of my my small workspace on my own. You know, I didn't have the sales and distribution and and that side of it. And skateboarding was starting to pick up in '84, and you could sense it compared to the last previous couple years. Uh huh. But we still never would have thought it was going to go off like it went in '85. And then especially 86, as we got to um, back to the future coming out and that excitement and whatever, you know, right. that awareness. I just watched the Tony Hawk documentary the other night and Stacy said something that I, I wasn't really aware of, but he, I don't know if you've seen it, but what he said was the documentary, yeah. basically okay. skateboarding every 10 years has kind of had these highs and lows and like, in the eighties and the nineties and, and it, it would come up and then it would disappear for a while. 
right now it's booming like cr- probably crazier than ever like are do you do you anticipate it to do that again no no so so what that really is based on the booms of the 60s 70s 80s and 90s of skateboarding because it really stopped in 90 because the skateboarding never died again and never went away okay uh-huh. Where in the 60s, it went away. In the 70s, it went away, except for just a very few. And the first half of the last century, people were born based on wars and recessions. And then when people had a family, they would have a family in their 20s and they would have three to six kids. Mm. Okay. And but as we as we moved later on in society, it now became a family was was, you know, moving in the 70s and 80s, more like, hey, it's, it's one to three kids. And it's having them in your 30s. So the whole cycle has been disrupted, right? And then the, the social economic cycles as well that tie to that, you know? So basically, it's, we're never going back to that again, but it was our foundation very clearly. You know, it was what people, oh, it's like the hula hoop, it's a fad, it's going to die. Yeah. Like the yo-yo, it's going to die. No, not happening. Not going to go here, down. It's here to stay. Were you creating the shapes for these boards too, or was somebody else creating the shapes? And you so, were just- so in general with Schmidt stick. So Chuck Holtz was my first employee and okay. he lived at my house with me. The press was in the bedroom. We, we shared that's where it started. And then eventually when I quit my job at the boat company and um, got a unit down the street and then he quit his job at the, uh, wherever he was working construction or something and just became my first full-time employee. But my house was sort of like my mom's condo was like a little factory. People would just come and stay and they package rails all night, like Sam and Donnie Meyer. <laughs> they, they probably pack more rails than anybody. Oh, you know, and Lily was like a nickel a bag. So they'd pay for the trip to come skate by by packing rails, skate labor. Yeah. Uh, who was the first uh, team rider? Um, as far as pro team rider, um, sort of Grigley, but that didn't last because he quit to ride for Vision. Or actually Sims and then Vision. Ah. Oh, so there was already the challenge of, of, you know, the reality is you're in Florida. You want to be tied to the California people, right? Like that kind of excitement, right? You know, where really the first pro team riders, Monty and older, and he'd mm-hmm. already ridden for the California people and got drug over the coals a few times, you know, of never making anything happen, right? Uh-huh. But he was like, let's do this here. Like, you know. So Grigley, but Grigley was from Florida. Grigley's from St. Petersburg, Florida. St. Petersburg. Across okay. the bay from Tampa. So I, I built, he, he had a ramp. there'd be a little pride, a little, little like, well, now we're from Florida. Like. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'd already gotten California's attention to what we were doing because I would build ramps and have contests and, and that kind of stuff. Oh, right. So, and we, you know, you, it's, it's like the, the field of dreams, you build it, they will come, you know, how, how do you have a, a pro contest in Florida on a Wednesday, the week after Coney, get everybody to drive there. The winner gets 50 bucks. His name was, he had a documentary last week. You were talking about. <laughs> he didn't yeah. lose. And, and then that was a great event. And then literally that, that winner Fosto helped me run a big contest. And so he'd been running contests at different places and he put the industry's strength behind it. I already had industry strength and we communicated and I, you know, took pictures and wrote articles to the magazine of what was going on in our scene all the Is time. Is that how you met Fausto contributing to the magazine? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And then I came there, I think it was Christmas 82 is when I actually met him in person. In SF? Yeah. I came to the shipyard 
Oh, sick. With, when the Mets- with, 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 my, with my uncle Paul Schmidt and the security guards thought we were a con game. What do you mean two Paul Schmitz? You can't have two Paul Schmitz. <laughs> what was Fausto like when you met him? Like, do you remember kind of first impression? Was he a tough guy to like talk to? Was he, how was it? Um, yeah, I mean, he's different. He's older, right? He's a business guy, you know, from, mm. from, a, from our generational context, right? You know, and getting to know him after I moved to California and, you know, attended lots of events. I was part of NSA meetings with him all the time and making contests happen and stuff. And, Cause I would build the ramps or I'd design the ramps um, until I, Tim Payne, I relieved me of that duty. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, what was I, I was building, I was building ramps like cabinets and he was building them like houses. Oh, okay. Cause I was trained as a cabinet maker, not as a house builder. Okay. So his were harder to take down. <laughs> <laughs> What was the contest that Fausto helped with? Well, the, we, we ran one in St. Pete, the St. Pete Ramp Jam. Oh. And um, was it in the mag? Yeah. Yeah, I think. Okay. Cool. The, only, the only picture I, I, I ever took that was on the cover of Thrasher is on the issue that has that contest. Uh, okay. Yeah. It says St. Petersburg on, the, on yeah. the cover. I wanted to talk to you about Joe Lopes because he's from our area too. And uh, rest in peace. But um, yeah. Just like he had the, I think he had the first ever ramp jam um, format at yeah. his at his ramp. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was Fosto running a contest. You know, Fosto was clearly paying attention to what was going on, right? You know, <clears throat> and just as Show had his scene on that side of the bay, he was paying attention to that because it was in his region, right? But through zines and everything, we were all trading zines around, and there was this whole community of people, you know, whether it was in Tennessee or Georgia or Florida or Texas, you know, if I look back at it to me, I think I was in what I was doing with my brand and my products and building ramps and making events. I was just mimicking what Jeff Newton was doing in Texas because they would come to our contest. So he's a guy that created Zorlock. Right. So he, he did a lot of early contribution to Thrasher uh-huh. photos and articles and stuff. And sort of we then I would just do the same thing from Florida that he was doing. Right. Right. Oh man. Was did Fausto talk to you at all about trying to get you to do it with him instead of doing it with Dorfman? Yeah, he did. He did. Oh. But um I hadn't done business with Fausto. I'd already like I'd had pictures in the magazine, articles. I never got one dollar for nothing. Not even uh-huh. a dollar of expense, right? But it's where skateboarding was too. That wasn't it wasn't serious. But basically I've been trading money with Dorfman for years. And my uncle uh Paul Schmidt or Pete as we knew him in the family, oh. he lived across the bay there. So he, he was just five miles from Lopes house. Oh, sick. So okay. I came to the bay a lot. That's why oh. I was there in 82. And then, and then, so the combination of having family up there and then team riders, you know, whether it's Lopes, Bryce, Danny, later on with like Justin Gerard, lots of guys in the Bay area. Yeah. Well, did you meet Bryce through the mag or how did you meet Bryce? Yeah. Through the mag for sure. Um, yeah. It might have been at, at a contest. I don't really. It was probably last year. I said, Bryce, I'm looking for some photos. And, and he, he finds a picture of me at Lopes Ramp doing an indie air with a shadow on the wall. And I'm like, oh, that's the best picture of my life. Oh my gosh. You know, so I use that for my Hall of Fame thing. So we had a session at Lopes's house, April 85. So I knew I, knew I met him in person then. Now, whether I met him in 84, I drove out to California, me and Chuck Colts and Monty and Steve Hilton did. 
I might've met him then, or I might've met him in 82. I don't really, don't really know. Wow. He, he might be able to say that better. The following first impression has been known to bite into a bowl of Wheaties and out comes a stunt wood. Ah. And now another first impression from number 43, Bryce Knights. What can be said about Paul Schmidt? A whole hell of a lot. As a skateboarder and a friend of Joe Lopes, Paul was cool enough to give me his approval to work on Joe's board graphics from concept to completion for his first pro model board on Schmidt Sticks. This is in 1985. It was an idea that I had from an MC Escher drawing that used Joe's face in his bedroom within the original mirrored ball illustration. Months later, I actually met Paul for the first time along with Monty, Monty Nolder that is, during their visit to the SF Bay Area. They also stopped by uh, Thrasher Magazine offices in San Francisco and showed him around the offices as Paul was an advertiser and also a contributor with photos and articles from uh, the Tampa area and the greater Florida skate scene. Later that afternoon, we went to Joe Lopes's uh, house and skated his backyard ramp. I saw Monty's uh, Nolder grind for the first time. It's pretty amazing. Right away, you could see Paul's passion for skateboarding, his progression, the subculture, and all the friendships involved. He was all about it. He was, he was fully in, just like we were. I'm forever grateful to Paul for sponsoring me and my skateboarding when my former sponsorship failed to work out. He stepped up, provided me with the spot on the team, and allowed me to contribute to his namesake brand of progressive skateboards, wheels, and accessories, all at a time when skateboarding was growing and influencing a new generation. Years later, and months after Schmidtstick's sudden departure from Vision, Paul sent me a $1,500 check from his personal checking account to help me pay for a video camera that I had my sights set on. In his note with the check, Paul said the payment was to cover for any lost skateboard royalties that were due to me, and Vision probably wouldn't be paying. This was a homie move that was not expected at all. I'll never forget that, Paul. Throughout the past four decades, Paul's stoke for skateboarding and its community has remained strong. Thankfully for us, he's a self-made entrepreneur, a thinker, one who's dedicated to discovering and improving how things work. We're so grateful for his commitment. As we've aged and continue to push along our magical wooden toys, Paul has remained enthusiastic as he was when I first met him. Sure, he's known as Professor Schmidt, but I see Paul more as the little perpetual skater kid that enjoys the freedoms that skateboarding provides him often smiling with the wind in his face as he rolls on by. Thanks so much, Paul. You rule. Yep. Like me, the, the people that were established, I knew who they were in that interaction, right? But that's looking, you're looking up, you don't look down. So you don't necessarily see everybody you interact with. You don't really know when you met, you know, but you're part of the culture, right? Hmm. You know, I had a, a cool meeting the other week of someone I met was Alex Chalmers. And I met him out at Phoenix Am. And he's like, well, it's so nice to meet you. We traded some communication afterwards. And so that's like, I've known you for years. It's like, yeah, you've been there my whole life. We've, <laughs> we've shared this culture together. Yeah. We just never met, right? Right. Just never met. Who did the, uh, do you remember who did the graphic? The barbecue graphic, um, Neil Blender did. That's Neil, right? The crystal ball one, Bryce took a picture and drew it. Okay. Sick. So the crystal ball one was Joe's first graphic. The barbecue one was a second. You don't realize what's going to become iconic, right? And what's going to be like part of culture for now and ever on. Mm -hmm. you know? 
even though you can look at it, go, well, that's great. Like I see on your, your wall there, there's a Bryce Gargoyle sticker, right? Yeah. And it's like, I remember working on that graphic. Right. It came from a building in SF. Yeah. Yeah. He's been obviously a huge inspiration for me and getting to know him and be friends and stuff. It's just been like crazy. Like just a kid that probably like yourself, you you know, you've moved to California, your eyes are open. You're like, I'm doing what I really want to do and love. And I'm meeting these people. It's just been insane i appreciate bryce a lot for just connecting the two of us even and yeah he was just here this weekend we did the uh p-stone annual uh contest yesterday it was so sick it was, oh, cool. everybody's in town and yeah I, I saw him post something about being at a ball game he's like oh he's back in the city again okay yeah going on could, could we talk a little bit about like going like how does schmidt sticks kind of come towards an end and new deal starts like where does those where does that happen is that you just well, want it was to- years in the making so basically i when i joined up with dorfman he said here's how we're going to do this and i'm like well that's not really fair or proper but he says this is what we're doing and i'm getting a paycheck running the factory right and i'm having to to fight to get a fair paycheck for doing that and then um at one point, I just got frustrated. You know, Schmidt sticks had gone from nothing, right? It was, it was selling, you know, we were making, I don't know, 100 boards a week or whatever it was, tiny, right? And um, and growing up to be in this big brand now. But really, when Lucero and Grasso joined the team, that's when it blew up. Because Lucero had his artwork, huh. you know, and Grasso had his generationalness, and Lucero had his establishedness right. Of a pro that had a model that sold was successful, you know, and then vision had sales and distribution. And I built a factory and we made them happen, you know, so those boards, so my brand instantly was selling, you know, Lucero's and Grasso's boards came out. It probably the most likely the first month sold more boards than the brand had ever even sold in its existence. Oh, wow. You know, because now <laughs> i got a, a factory, it's tooled up, it's working at this level, you know, success yeah so basically after after being in california for two years i quit my job because i couldn't get brad he he, i had this problem i was an employee and a licensor without a real contract or an official parameter and the official was that what brad said you know he was a business person versus a creative right oh and that challenge you know and i'm like well look i made it work you got a factory that's making tons of stuff you didn't have one before I got here, but he's like, well, that was your job. That's what you were paid to do. And it's like, well, but, but my brand then blew up in that time as well. Right. So basically I, I spent a year battling legal stuff, trademarks, contracts, got, got things clear. Um, but it'd been, but my brand was now established in something. Right. You know, so, so then I'm sort of in just development mode. I don't run the factory anymore. I go to events with the team and, you know, still still play a role but basically it was it was like because vision was so busy it was growing it was it they were too occupied right the first day the first thing is he had a great sales distribution system in the early 80s that's why i sold my rails all over the place and um then basically i gave him a factory built the factory with his money you know and and the tools i brought or the knowledge i brought and then um he could ship boards before everybody else could because he had his own factory. Huh. 
right? So it took, you know, Powell and NHS took longer to catch up. So Vision was getting sales just because it could ship. Mm. And then basically he started Vision Streetwear and went into shoes and clothes. Nobody else was doing skateboard shoes and clothes. So there was no competition. So he was really, really good at supply and demand. And, and the branding was there because the riders were there. Um, right. But I would say it was never as strong as, as NHS or Power as far as branding, videos, marketing, like that kind of thing, right? But, but beating them to the punch. And then the last one was Sim Snowboards and beating Snowboard to the punch, right? Yeah. And then, but basically after that, there wasn't another new category to blow up. And now you had to compete at all categories and you had a big machine and the market got soft. Not easy to downsize. I wish it upon anybody. It's, it's part of the hard thing of business is you, you, it's, it's easier to climb the hill than it is to be up on the hill. Yeah. So you got to start getting rid of things or downside. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's very challenging. So did he end up buying, he's got the ownership of Schmidt sticks. Yeah. So basically when we started new deal, there was contract negotiations with Miller and he would not let me be part of the contract negotiations because he's trying to get Miller to ride for vision streetwear and Miller didn't like that pressure. And he was just like, I'll go do this thing with Tony Mag and these guys and do planet earth. Forget, forget that pressure. And I told Brad that if we lose Miller, it's over. And Brad was like, yeah, whatever, you know? <laughs> and, um, and I just knew that I'd had too many team riders quit. Right. And, and they quit not because of me, they quit because of, Brad vision, the big machine, right? They didn't want to be the big machine, mm-hmm. you know, because Schmidt stick sort of had like the blue collar skateboard brand almost, you know, it wasn't, we weren't going to win like the Powell team, you know, Miller could, but most of the team wasn't right. You know, huh. the reality is that, you know, we got to that point where, Hey, it's over. So basically I had uh, gone to Miller was like, Hey, I got to see you. And I'm like, I'm going to Europe tomorrow. And he's like, well, we got to meet tonight. And we met in San Clemente or something. And I knew what he was going to tell me. And it was a time where someone was like, I got to talk to you face to face. This is this serious, you know, mm-hmm. not I'm quitting, you know, see it on Instagram or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so it was positive in that context, but basically I got on a plane the next day. And by the time I come back, Douglas is like, we're going to leave. And it's just going to fund our company. I'm like, well, I know that like, I, everybody in the industry was always all over me. When are you going to come join us? You know, because I'd be at like the NSA meetings and I'd be in the big five meeting and they'd ask Paul to leave. And then after the meeting, the next time I would see the the rest of the big five, they would all say, sorry about that, Paul. Brad didn't want you in there because I was an employee licensor. So it was a power struggle. Right. But because I was younger and I was generationally aware, I was the one that knew what was going on and what needed to happen from, from that perspective. Right. Right. And, and playing my sphere of influence in that. Huh. So basically I already had the industry been for years, but like, Hey, come join us or, you know, move your brand over here or come work for us or whatever, you know? But basically I was like, I already did that for Brad. I'm not going to start over and then start over for somebody else, you know? Right. It's- so then we, we started new deal. So literally we started working on it that February. didn't really release it till till June, we had a promo video in the market and in May and then it boomed instantly. It's interesting to me. I don't know how much you want to, or are able to talk about these things, but like from my perspective, and this is fully my perspective. Um, I see these boards that some shops still carry. That's like 
Mark Gonzalez without his name on it, Joe Lopesport, who's dead. Like there's a lot of things that seem like a faux pas to me that are happening from that camp. And then to see your name on these boards that you're not behind, it just seems weird. Like if you're a core skater, you wouldn't support these kind of things. And I just wonder, like, are you okay with all this stuff or is it bittersweet? Well, I, I, accept, I accept the fact that I signed away the trademark. I signed away the rights, you know? Also, if I would have kept on going with Schmidt sticks, I never would have made it in the future anyways, because the brand was this product development thing. By the time Schmidt sticks was over, the skateboard was refined. Oh, you know, when I started making them in 83, that was really crude. Right. But by the time we're 90, it's skateboards not crude anymore. It's really refined. Right. Okay. And so, so then I would have had to compete at a Powell, at a, at a marketing level or a hip or cool or whatever, which I wasn't, you know, uh-huh. I was more of an infrastructure guy, you know, okay. I'm an enthusiast and I'm soulful about it. And I still participate in skateboarding today, you know, yeah. had a great downhill session this morning. Yeah. Yeah. You guys do that every uh, Sunday when I'm, when I'm in town and around. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. A nine and a half mile bike path, little casual ride. Nice. Oh man. Yeah. We got this one. And whenever I go visit my friends in San Diego, they call it the run. And you just go down like this parking garage and then this hill and it ends up at the downtown. It's just so fun. Yeah. <laughs> Big crew. Yeah. Was there a time, especially maybe in the Rocco era, where like they purposely made boards weak so you could focus them? So you had like, was that a business tactic in your mind? That's like break boards, got to buy more. Not to me. Um, I was always making the best I could, but I would say in the nineties, there was the, you know, don't tell us what we want. We'll tell you what we want. Uh Okay. So I went through, through the, the eighties or even starting my rails, making a vision, telling people what I wanted to tell them through my product. Right. And then we get to nineties and they're like, don't tell us nothing. We're here to tell you basically, you know, the consumer's the boss, you know? Yeah. So if Rocco makes it hip and cool, it's makes it hip and cool, right? Rocco had a really good tone there because him, if he thought it was fun, and as long as you weren't the the butt of his fun, it was a great place to be. <laughs> yeah, he just, <laughs> but, but it was just all about fun. Literally, because uh-huh. Rock Rocco Lily worked, his office was in my woodshop factory for six months. Oh, really? So he was around my factory all the time and interacting with us all the time. And then he was, so he was a vision Sims team manager and, you know, Rocco's all about fun. So what's rather than taking a rider out in your sports car. But when Brad finds out that Rocco got a company car as a two seat sports car, but see, to Rocco, that was fun, fun, <laughs> funny. It's great. Right. Brad wasn't happy. I remember when Brad took me with to fire Rocco. Oh, really? I was a backup. Yeah, it wasn't, there was no problem. There was no fight. Obviously, Rocco won. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, man, did he, right? Jesus. Do you have, like, looking back at the Schmidt Sticks and New Deal boards, do you have, like, one board or something that still remains, like, if you were going to put one up from all those on your wall that, like, you're stoked on? Yeah. I, I don't know what to say there. I don't have, um, I'm not a big favorites person. So, um, to say what my favorite is, you know, would be like, you know, could it be a, 
an X15 composite board with a urethane bumper and foam core and, you know, turbine wheels on it. Yeah, probably that. What the fuck is that? I can't. There's just too many to have them hanging around and being part of things, you know? There's some stuff here. I'll, I'll put my laptop up. We're using my laptop here. But up, up on the wall here, you see I got all these old boards on the wall. Oh, yeah. You know, so oh, yeah. Stuff up. Nice. Oh, yeah. Was it a big deal when you did the uh, yardstick? Yeah, the yardstick definitely was as an iconic board. And, you know, people sort of considered it my model because I wrote it. You know, not only did I make it, I ride it on a vert ramp, right? And I'd, uh, you know, clear out the deck with the nose of the board when I do a rock to fakie or something, you know? For like kids now that didn't know, but like the double tailboard. Mike V is pretty much credited with that, right? Well, really, the, the double kicktail started with the Chris Miller board. Mm. So when Chris Miller, when there's talks of Chris Miller riding for Schmidt Sticks, I've known Chris for years, and and his agent was Gator's agent. And Gator's agent knew how much business Gator was doing and how little business Miller was doing at GNS because GNS didn't put the infrastructure together to go capitalize on it. Uh-huh. Vision had. And um, so basically the combination of Chris being like, I don't have to deal with corporates. I'll deal with Paul. I know Paul and that perspective. So that's how, that's how he got on Schmidt sticks. But literally I remember meeting him at Upland skate park with this new mold. I don't remember the, what the shape was at that point in time, but he, he wrote it and he was so blown away because he was riding Watson boards, which were still making the same thing in, in 87 as they were making in 82. Right. And I was already three. This was my third generation into molds. So this is my third design. And Chris Instant was like, oh, my gosh, a skateboard works so much better. This is fabulous. You know, Uh, so that was part of him joining the team was then the product was there. And then we made the shape. He decided how he wanted the shape to look with it. And I remember being at the trade show and everybody being like, Chris Miller on Schmidt Six, no way. Look at the board and the guy from the skate shop, the, the business owner be like, oh, this isn't going to work. And the kid from behind the counter be like, gimme, gimme, gimme. You know, the, 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 the current generation could see what I could see where, where the older people couldn't, you know, until finally, as I said, like 90-ish, it was caught up. Like you had to do what I was doing or you couldn't, couldn't sell a skateboard, right? But, but Chuck Holtz is the one that truly took it to a truly symmetrical board. Realize that barnyard board for Vallely did not have a nose as long as the tail. The nose was still an inch shorter than the tail. Oh, okay. Interesting. But that mold also Rocco had finagled out of the vision shop or, you know, paid someone to, to reveal the newest stuff. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like in the new deal era, we got to the point where the nose quickly became longer. I remember Templeton being like, I want more nose. I'm like, why? Well, I want to look at it. I, like, do you need more to slide on? No, I just want it taller, longer. Uh-huh. And then it got longer than the tail. Where the Schmidt sticks boards, there wasn't ever a Schmidt stick board that had a nose and tail the same length. And this is all because of street skating, like boards were one way and then street right. skating that like ollieing on street and all these things start happening and people want to flip their boards and different things. So they want their boards to be a different way, right? To make right. it easier. Yep. And, and are you kind of like, that's how you're the professor. You're like, I know how to make it all higher. I know how you want it to do a heel flip or. Well, nowadays I've, I've had so much experience with it. Right. And I've seen so much and it's more of just a feedback loop. You know, if someone gives me feedback, I give it an interaction and the result. 
But in general, you know, I understand all the parameters, you know, I'll have a, a pro in and they're like, and I'm like, what you, you're not on thunders anymore. No, you switch. I'm like, well, that's your problem. <laughs> and I just go put the math difference of the, of the truck in, into the board. And they're like, Oh, I'm home. <laughs> it ends up being your condition by what you, what you grow up with almost, you know, and that's always going to feel best to you. Uh huh. You know? But that doesn't mean it's available. It doesn't mean somebody's selling it. You know, you're adapting because skateboarding is all about adapting all the time. But what would you say to two different people that have two complete philosophies on like, I think this board Ollie's better. And this guy says, I think this Ollie's better. Would they both be right? Or is one Ollie better than the other? So your own perception is your own reality. Just to be clear, like, Whatever math says, your perception may not match it, but what you perceive is, right? And it's when you step out of that comfort zone and you learn something, then you change your perception, right? And, and I say that because it'll be like, I'll have a guy that was like, oh, my tail needs to be shorter. And then I'll have him ollie around the parking lot, do some mods, prove it out. Yeah, it needed to be shorter. You're right. Because he's like, goes to ollie and then ollie's perfect now. The, the, the time he... Sort of like boxing, right? And you don't, you don't, you don't want to hit too early, and you don't want to hit too late, right? You want to hit that that real sweet spot. So yeah. you, I'll just, and I I can hear, oh, that's the right sound, because I just heard him not have the right sound. It's a feedback loop, right? If somebody gives me input, what needs to happen or change, and then you validate it by how it works. Uh huh. Or like when guys are here working with me. Um, First of all, it takes someone that gives that time because a lot of people don't, mm. you know, they don't take the time to, to go that deep with it because their, their sphere of influence isn't there or whatever, you know, or they're following the tide or the trend or, you know, that kind of thing. Where when you get the guys locked in the right place and they're like, oh, I'm here, this is great, you know, um, but it's just feedback, you know. So would the answer to the question be like different strokes for different folks? Like there's no right or wrong. It's skateboarding. Okay. The right is it ollies and you're happy with how it ollies. Yeah. Or you're not happy, you know? So the simplest thing, somebody like, I really love it when my board's worn in. It's like, fine, let me just shorten your tail and it will be that way when it's new and then it'll become more. Right. So it's like, you're trying to get somebody in a zone. If you look at your board, there's what I call a triangle of leverage. And it's, it's a, it's a distance between the tail touching the ground, the wheel and the truck above the above, top of the board, above the truck and that triangle uh-huh. and based on the wheel diameter and your, your tail length, the mold that it was made in, you know, the truck, the truck height, riser pads or not, it's all part of it, right? Uh-huh. But people figure out what they like. They don't know why. And then usually if they try to find out, right? You know, so people tell me all the time, oh my gosh, I listened to that. And I tried this. And now I know where I'm in the right place. Thank you. I wasn't even with them. You know, they just listened to something that I shared about it. Huh. Interesting. Did you work with Danny Way at all when he did like the Great Wall of China and these big uh, mega ramp jumps, like to change the boards to, to like they're, they're a different board that those guys ride, right? 
Yeah. So when, when Danny got the first ramp thing going, he said, Hey, I'm trying to do this thing. I don't know if I need a snowboard size skateboard. <laughs> I don't know what I need. Uh-huh. So, I, so I made him a variety of boards and went to his house and laid them on the, on the, the floor. And we talked about them and this and that. And then he came back. That's the one I really like. I then stretched a mold that he already wrote on vert. So basically it ended up being his vert board had like 15 and a quarter inch wheelbase. He was at 16 and a quarter wheelbase on this, but it's thicker because it can't flex. And then at some point we went to some carbon reinforced stuff in that and then got it thinner, you know, could still make it work there and then got it lighter. Cause he'd sort of been like, I don't care how heavy it is. doesn't matter. Massive <laughs> momentum are in full effect on this ramp. And how wide is it? Is it only wider? Eight, only, only eight and a half. Really? He rides two fifteens. He started with 70 millimeter wheels. He eventually worked down to more 60 ish. Huh. Um, and, but it rides two fifteens cause they turn slower. So the wider the truck is the slower it turns. Okay. So stability cause of the speed they're going at. It's insane. Know. Even just the rolling is crazy. Like not like the whole thing is nuts. Oh, it is totally. Yeah. Totally. Does something stand out as like the craziest thing? Somebody's come to you and said, can you help me build this or some idea that they had? Yeah, I don't know. Really. It's, I mean, I'll always get somebody like, Hey, we got this idea and it's all patented and it's all locked up. And, and I'm like, you know, nobody, the people that have those ideas, they never go anywhere, mm. you know, because they're, they're, they're like, Oh no, I'm a skateboarder. I know. I snowboard all the time. I know what's up. You know, it's like, you know, I see that with the, it's been really interesting this last five years that we've gone in this crowdfunding mode, right? Where people can make a design a product and convince the consumer to fund it. And they don't have to worry about salespeople and distribution and all that. But basically that <laughs> egotistically, it also builds a bunch of ego to that, you know, because I dealt with some people where it's like, make this and I'm like, and then you can't get through their engineering team. They're it's like, you know. It's hard. Ego is such a hard thing because you got to be confident in what you do, right? Or you can't do it. Right. It's just a trick. I don't care what it is. You got you got to have confidence. You know you. But there comes a point sometimes, especially in the crowdfunding, when hey, when they raise millions of dollars, they think that they're they're just it, right? And I'm going to make this electric board this way, and da 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 da. da and, yeah. You know, they understand USBs and and electric motors and stuff really good, and they think they understand boards, and they just don't. Uh, I had half a dozen of the things where it's like I, I whip out a prototype and like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then basically because of sort of business engineering team, like all the other stuff you can't get through making it work. Right. And then they're like, oh, well, we ran out of our millions of dollars. Now we're over. That brings me to one of the things I don't really appreciate. I don't understand. I think at first I was okay. like, these guys are kooks. I hate this. Like, you know, it was an irritating thing. I've tried to understand it and I can't understand it. There's the unowheel, right? And it one has yeah. the, the one wheel. Yeah. These things cost probably a lot of money. Yeah. They don't, they're heavy. Like there's so many guys in San Francisco riding them around. And I'm like, I just don't understand. It, it doesn't look cool to me. It doesn't seem like it serves a purpose. Well, like, you drive it to work. Is there a locker or something like what? I don't know. I just, I can't figure out the sensation on it. Yeah. Well, I've ridden a one wheel before and I took one once and modified, made a concave deck on it. It was way better. I'll tell you that. 
Uh-huh. Even just having a kicktail on it so that you could stand on it and, and go from that part, you know? Yeah. It, it, it's definitely, they're interesting to ride. I've only ridden them a couple of times, but I saw a guy at the pump track in San Diego filming somebody on one of those. <laughs> on a pump track filming, doing a really good job. This guy knew how to ride that thing. Wow. But the reality is it's like, you know, different strokes for different folks. I would yeah. say anything that gets anybody outside and active is great in the world of, you know, people buried behind computer screens and video games and all this type of stuff. If you're outside and active, hopefully you'll figure out it's too kooky. Eventually you're going to find something less kooky, but who knows, you know, it's like, yeah, outside and active. you know, I, that's how I've always felt like in the tides of things, rollerblading or scooters or whatever. It's like tides are going to come and go. Yeah. It's hard being a skateboarder from earlier generation. That's always, we've always judged, you know, like whether it was right or wrong, we always knew what a kook was. We always knew what we thought was rad, all that stuff. And then in 2022, the judgment is like in our evolving process, we're trying to judge less and it's hard to like keep your, I don't know, roots and core and stay true to what you've always believed, but also progressing. And it's, it's been an interesting thing the last like you know, whatever it's been five years or so. Yeah. Well, the openness to skateboarding now is just so amazing. I don't care if it's freestyle board, a plastic board, a long board, a street board, a park board, whatever, you know, as long as you're outside and rolling. Yeah. Active. It's all that really matters, you know? Right. And that's the greatest thing about skateboarding. It's like that, that push. And then you feel some vibration through your feet and air on your face and you decided where you're at and what you're going to do with it. It's amazing. Even if you are a kook or whatever, you know, it's like, it doesn't really matter. To influence somebody. That base level thing, you know, it's like tricks are for kids. I don't do tricks. I just roll. I get a carb grind. I'm happy. That's about all I need nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes we go to the, the park and I'll just drop in and pump the bowl for a while. Not Never hit the coffee. It was like... Yep. That's good. Got got in some cardio. <laughs> I don't I think it's still a debate, but like some people are upset about it that uh the boards increase in pricing. Uh you know, we've 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 bought in boards for about forty-five to fifty dollars almost our whole life. The, yeah. the the price has never changed. Recently, I think because of COVID, I'm not sure, but it seemed like boards were really hard to get. And people were freaking out. And I think that was a, a moment where they started to reevaluate. And now they've raised the price on at least some of them. Well, the cost of everything's gone up. The reality is the last couple of years, the, the, the pent up energy, it's sort of like China, China gave this false bubble to the world and said, you can ship all your stuff here and the containers are empty and the ship's coming back here. And we're going to make it cheap and get it out to the world, right? So what would have been a price increase over the last 20 years didn't happen because of that. Well, now it's all catching up because all of a sudden the system is so clogged and so constrained that it's all impacted, right? And people are like, I don't want to drive a truck anymore or I got a new career, you know? Hmm. There's this whole change going on in the world, right? And then whether it's chemistry, whether it's... um, I mean, like in the world of, of chemicals, you know, glue, there's been like some chemicals have been hard to get. There was a, a year, a little over a year ago, a chemical plant in a bunch of plants in Texas froze. They weren't designed to freeze. And, and the, the, the chemical industry of what gets refined out of petroleum all got messed up for all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Okay. And, and that went on 
with COVID already making it. And then they had a ship stuck in the Suez Canal for like eight days or something. And, and the whole world of, of moving the way, the way products and things move around the world has all been constrained because they weren't available. They are available. Ships aren't available. Containers aren't there. Trucks aren't there to drive it. Right. The warehouse is full. The warehouse is empty. You know, so with skateboard decks, we, we had a situation where we always were always soft first quarter of the year, just normal. Always been that way. If you look at North America and you go like, there's more, more, more of the planet, more of earth is in North America and South America. Yeah. Right. I mean, as Southern hemisphere, and Northern hemisphere. Okay. So skateboarding always has the strength in the Northern hemisphere in the summer, spring and summer. It's just normal COVID year. We didn't have that at all last year because we were still playing catch up. Right. right. Because that supply and demand game. Um, and the, the wood shortage, like people, there's a wood shortage. No, we didn't have a wood shortage at all. It was a planning shortage. You know, mm. we were able to get wood fine. You got to pay a thousand bucks more to get a truck this week. You got to pay a thousand bucks more. You, there's no choice. You can't wait for a cheaper truck. Right. Got to have wood, you know? Uh, that type of thing. So it, it's been interesting this last couple of years for sure. Yeah. I feel uh, like the COVID kind of, made skateboarding grow a lot of a lot of parents and people were going to buy skateboards for their first time because whatever they need to be outside and they needed like bikes i, I don't know but yeah, now the, all the individual sports thrived in covid you know uh -huh. because people needed to be outside and active and do something right yeah. i think what what skateboarding got though was that the 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 amount of people that came back to skateboarding that sort of had been like I grew up, I went to college. I don't skateboard anymore, you know, and then a public skate park gets built in their town. Their child wants to go to the skate park. And then pretty soon they find out, wow, I'm having fun doing this, uh, you know, and, and participating to the point. Like I skated the park in uh, Linda Vista a couple weeks ago with some guys who were in their forties and they were like, yeah, we started skating through COVID and our kids used to come to the park because they're not coming to the park right now, but the kids are like nine years old, you know, nine years old kids are in and out of things. Right. You know, right. But dad's back. Right. You yeah. know, or, or like in COVID, you know, dad and uncle Joe always said they used to ride skateboards. The kids never believed them. And then they weren't <laughs> working for three months and they built a, a quarter pipe or a grind rail or ledge or something. Right. And then yeah. they they're back at it now. You know, the respect level has definitely increased a lot. I mean, police officers often pull us over and say, dude, I get it. I skate or I skated. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, like, yeah. it's like, it's pretty interesting. And it's, it's also pretty embarrassing to be pulled over by a policeman 20 years younger than you for skating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get that one for sure. Yeah. Those things are so. I, I, I actually got chased around the pump track in Carmel Valley the other week by a police officer. It was great. He was no in the uniform. And I was like, why don't I have a video of this, right? <laughs> it's chased by a cop around the pump track. It's fabulous. How fun are those pump tracks? God. Yeah, well, the cement ones are great. The asphalt ones degrade so quick. But the cement ones are great. And the, the great thing really is like just being, I don't know, three, four feet tall. No taller than three or four feet. Yeah. yeah. We had oh, a most of the stuff is 18 inches or 24. Fabulous. We had a wooden one in uh, Santa Cruz and it was just so sick. It was almost like a race car track. Like it had the berms and everything around it. And then uh, we took that idea and we found this uh, 
what's it called? A, a children's playground in San Francisco that yeah. has like this cement thing that it's not okay. made for anything, but we were like, we could do time trials and use this as a fun <laughs> Yeah. The last thing I wanted to talk about was the whole 411 thing. You were a part of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So 411 took place in my building at the front of PS6. And um, I was more the technical side of it, you know, the make it happen. Um, we'd had this video system called VideoFX um, <clears throat> for New Deal that we'd already bought and used. And basically, Josh Freeberg took to it and, and made did really good with it. Right. So that, and to the point where Steve was like, well, do me some screen jabs for ads or whatever. And Josh's like, well, I would just do video, you know, uh-huh. and then together that's where it came. So I just built the systems to make it happen. And what were those systems like? This is the part that I kind of know a little bit about because I've done video editing and like we, I always tell kids, I'm like, we spent, I think it was 10 grand for media uh, 100, you yeah. know, like some crazy amount of money. That's just, it's obsolete now. And yeah. uh, I remember the first video I edited, we had like maybe two gigs or something. It was like, and everything rendered, you had to do it overnight for like little sections and stuff. Is that, is that kind of the same type of thing? Yeah. So really for, for us, it was even before that. So the first, the first disc array to do four on one video was um, two gigs and it cost $10,000. Yeah, and it was five and a half inch disc. It weighed like a thirty pound box. Uh huh. And that's what it took to make it happen. So we had a system called Video FX that could put postscript images over tape, and you would have low res videos. So you had like two forty by three twenty videos, thirty frames a second, and you edit your video. You put your text and things over it, and then when it was time to assemble it, you would then say assemble, and it would say put put uh, tape number twelve into deck. One, put tape number 17 in deck. And then it would find the time code and fast forward and find that oh. piece and lay it down. So we had this like hybrid that that sort of worked like the old school systems, but with a personal computer and digital. And that's what 401 started on until Media 100 became mature enough. You know, we'd done a couple of video cards of Premiere and stuff, and it just wasn't mature enough. And it was so hard to work. It's like you had to have your networking off, disconnect your Ethernet cable, like don't run any extra nothing, you know? Yeah. It was it was crazy that the games you had to play to make it work. And then pretty much I got blamed by that for everybody. Like if there's a glitch, it's your fault. Or- uh, yeah. But Paul's got to run on these horrible systems. It's like, <laughs> well, we, we didn't have a quarter million dollars to spend, you know? You know, we, we were doing what we could with what we had, you know? How was it for you being on the technical side, dealing with a skateboarder that maybe doesn't know very much technical and, and like some well, of this see, stuff. Josh, Josh was college educated. He oh. was technical. So okay. it really was not an issue. It was Josh. And then Kirk Danda came on and eventually Colin Kennedy. And pretty oh. much after that, I didn't really work before anymore. I moved to the back of the building. So those guys were aware enough. You know, it, just, it was just frustrating because systems weren't mature and deadlines are deadlines. And Douglas is always pushing for the deadline. <laughs> <laughs> Those are great videos, though. Yeah. No, it's pretty crazy that the iconicness of that, you know, and managing that, you know. So I would deal with that. I would deal with accounting and books and subscriptions and stuff like that. Oh, neat. What a great time to be just involved with all that stuff. Is It was really all of it, even the technical, everything was 
kind of trial and error in a lot of ways. Like oh, it was, it was like figuring it out. Like I don't know, no one's done this yet. We're we're doing it. Like right. And that's, I think that's what the coolest shit is like, oh, this guy kickflip 10 stairs. But like the first kickflip was like mind blowing. Right. Like, I don't know. So, yeah, the standard is so high. It's like people always like, well, how's a skateboard going to get better? Like, it's so refined. You know, if if you said you can build thousand dollar boards, I don't know how to make them better for a thousand bucks. Yeah, are we kind of flat? Are we tapped? Are we really? We're really at that place. We're just so refined, right? As we talked about price going up recently, but in in the scope of scale compared to the rest of what we buy in life, it's cheap, right? Skateboards, cheap play. I mean, from my mind, I don't believe that if you said I could give you one skateboard that you would have for the rest of your life and it will always perform the exact. I don't think I'd want that even, you know, like it's like part of the beauty is setting new boards up and like trying a little different thing or like, you know, whatever. And no kid has a thousand dollars to buy a skateboard, you know? Well, the hardest thing is you, as a consumer, you go to a shop and you're excited. You're there because of the brand, the pro, the graphic, whatever's talking to you, you're there in front of the wall. One of those things is talking to you. You came in going like, God, I got to have this or I got to have that. Right. And quite often people buy what's not the right product for them because they're just focused on that piece. Right. But the magic of that piece is very good because there's no skater that didn't get a new board today. That if tomorrow you said to him, would you like a new board? No, I don't want a new board. That's a bad idea. Yeah. Nobody's ever going to say that. Right. Yeah. Everybody wants a new board. And it's funny for me. I've been riding the same board for a couple of years. I'll regrip it. People are like, well, you're lucky. You get all the free boards you want. It's like, it's time to skate. I'm going to skate. I don't need to make a new board. You know, every couple of years, I'll make like a board, like I'll go on a trip for my birthday or something and make a board, you know, uh, just for the, for the trip, for the purpose. But unless I've got something to test or figure out, right. it doesn't matter. You know, okay. I more just want to skate my, my skill and where I'm at. Are you uh, just one piece of grip paint? tape down or do you like to get artsy with it or um i wouldn't say artsy mine's cut around the top graphic right now so uh-huh. not one piece usually not one piece because i always ride a board that's like 34 and the the sheets of grip tape are usually like 33 okay so i'm always i've always fought that because i ride big wheelbase i'm i'm conditioned by my past right and i know it's hard to put a number on it but is there an a general estimation on how many like templates and boards you've put out throughout all the years. I don't even know what to say there. I mean, from, from a, you know, made personally, you Uh know, not that many, someone like Chuck Holtz has personally made a lot more boards than me because he's worked on the production line for years. Right. You know, I, I build samples and prototypes and, you know, a few type of thing Um, in my factories, since I started being factory guy, Somewhere in the last, I think, year and a half, I passed the 19 million boards number. So over 19 million served. That's insane. Damn. But the crazier thing is that the, everything else since that time as well is a reflection of that. Like I built upon what I saw and people built upon what they saw of mine, right? You know? So, you know, my my DNA is in any skateboard, whether I made it or not. You know, if it's got a double kick. Right. Yeah. You know, or it plays that kind of role. Your uh, factory's in, in Mexico? 
Yeah, Tijuana. Okay, is that's where that, the there's a few down there. Is that just because yeah, there's a two other factories down there? Cheaper real estate, or why is that? Uh, actually, rent isn't much cheaper in Tijuana, but labor is. The labor, but you know, labor went up twenty two percent this year. Minimum wage went up twenty two percent in Mexico. That, that hasn't hit the prices on the wall, of the skate shop yet, but it probably will. Oh, really? For the years out. Okay. Heads up. Thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. It's cool picking your brain. And what like, I do. Yeah. Well, uh, we always end with a song. Do you got a song you'd like to throw on the jukebox as we take it out of here? I don't know. What would that be? Maybe like Madness One Step Beyond. I always liked to a lot when I was a kid. I don't know. Sure. I like Whatever that. Whatever you got. Yeah. All crazy world out there anyways, right? <sighs> Real crazy. You been staying good though? Yeah, I'm happy, healthy, alive. I'm I'm stoked. Yeah. The lockdown didn't affect you. You're just indoors making stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It affected me a little bit. I lost a quarter of my body, so that was good. Uh, a lot of people gained a lot more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I broke my femur a couple of years ago and they wanted to replace my knee. And I'm like, I got to get healthy. I can't. Oh, that's right. How's that? Are you okay? Yeah. The femur's fine. I mean, my knee, my, my knee wasn't great before that. And it's not any better now. That's for sure. But I'm, I'm way better now because I weigh 65 pounds less and I'm Damn. active and I need to, I need to get that broken femur diet. (laughs) Well, no, it was the, they want to replace your knee joint is what did it to me. Oh, really? Because they're like, well, yeah, you're a candidate for knee joint replacement. I'm like, please. But the crazy thing is, is what was two to five pounds a year for 20 years of my life, adding that, right? That gone now. So much of what I thought was age as I got years long was really the fact that I was carrying more pounds. Right. And your body has to fight those more pounds, right? Oh, you, yeah. you have more stress in your joints and you have more going on, you know? So for me, it's been great, you know? Okay. Hey, I just got two questions texted to me from Mr. Bryce Knights. He said he was going to send me questions and he just did. <laughs> <laughs> You ready? <laughs> yeah, BK, what do you got? The first one is give your thoughts on the rise of women engaged in skateboarding in the past decade. So on women in skateboarding, I just think it's fabulous. It's just this, it's just another piece of this diversity, right? And for young girls, seeing what's happening this past year with the Olympics and just that's going to be normal forward, you know? So I think it's great. I mean, it's like, I think just like the pump track thing has that mild thing that has a way to get people started. You know, I really think there needs to be more pump tracks. I'll tell you that right now for, for the board sports community, because you can be a not active skateboarder and ride your scooter, your skateboard, your roller skates, your inline, your bicycle skateboard, all there. Right. Very, very interesting in that context. I've literally at the pump track that I go to, the uh, I can remember being there on the weekend, a family of five, mom, dad, and kids, all riding, all riding different vehicles. And I think I think mom and dad were the only ones on skateboards. And then Tuesday morning, mom's there alone when I'm there one day, right? She's not having to babysit the kids, you know, like, but it's like going to the gym, right? Like, that's how I treat going to the pump track, but it's very soulful. It's fun. Yeah. You know, it's not high risk, you know? So I feel things like that are going to open that up for women more. Right. Mm. You know, so excited to see that. 
you know, yeah. and seeing, seeing women all along, if we go back to the 70s, 60s and 70s, skateboarding was more women involved in the 60s and the 70s than it was in the 80s and the 90s. Hmm. But that's because it was more around freestyle, almost like ballerina skateboarding, right? It wasn't about aggressive. It was just about flow and go. Oh, okay. You know, type of thing, right. You know? But you look at where young girls are taking the tricks of skateboarding and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> like there's no barrier, you know? Yeah. We had girls at the, um, in the jam yesterday and they were, it was, the whole thing was just beautiful. I mean, it's a tribute to all our bros that have fallen, but like the skating, the energy, I told my wife, I came up, she's like, how was I? I was like, imagine like all these people you've never get to see they're all in one place they're a lot of them are your friends and they're able to raise your adrenaline like four cups of coffee can for four plus <laughs> hours and then they yeah. leave <laughs> and then they're gone and you're like yeah. ah, ah. <laughs> i mean it's that feeling you know it was pretty cool yeah he also asked uh who were some pro skaters that you were considering but never quite made it to the Schmidt Sticks roster? Well, someone you had on the other week, Bill Danforth. Oh, yeah. He used to always ride my rails, you know, and there was talk about him riding for Schmidt Sticks, and then he did that Alva thing instead. Ah, uh, okay. It's okay. Yeah. Who, who else? I mean, it's like, you know, how serious it was. I don't know. There was no contracts, there was none of that, right? So, um, Someone else I had talks to with him going from Dogtown to Santa Cruz was Eric Dressen. Oh. And, um, but like, same thing. He rode my rails for years, uh -huh. you know? And um, so I had, I had lots of those relationships, you know, whereas like it, it's sort of weird in one way because of the rail thing. And they'd be like, well, he rides for that brand. He's riding Schmistick's rails, you know, but someone's got to make the best stuff. Right. Right. Real cool, man. Lots of good stuff. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, no problem. Cool to hang out and catch up with you on the stuff. Yeah, hopefully. I got one time, I think, I'm pretty sure there was a Ramona contest and me and you stayed at the same hotel. That was as, yeah. that was as close as I got to like literally like <laughs> high-fiving you. <laughs> yeah, for some reason, our paths haven't crossed. I mean, yeah. When you're out of the city, you're not around where I'm at. Yeah, uh, I don't get down there too much, but I need to more often for sure. Well, if you're down here and you want to come in the shop and make a board, you know. Oh, I would love to do that. Yeah, I'll hit you up for sure. That'd be really cool. <laughs> yeah, you and everybody else, right? <laughs> no, but it's hard. One thing I would say with that is with Instagram, everything, everybody feels so touchable. And people are like, oh, I need this or give me some advice on that. Or, hey, I want to come in the shop. And it's like. I, if I could just do that all day and not do my real job, right? That'd be great. But I got to pay the bills. I got to make things work. I got 50 employees. I got to keep everything going. You know, it's never as easy as you want, right? Yeah. Oh, um, believe me. But things things are so accessible. Information, communication, interaction, just it's right there, right? Yeah. Really cool nowadays. Yeah, it's it's pretty i mean the whole way i'm able to do this is just amazing like i i started it off just doing it in person and then the covid happened and i was like i didn't know what zoom was at that time and then yeah i was now i'm doing an interview with dustin dolan in australia and i'm like oh this is kind of cool i can reach people <laughs> like you know like right yeah so. no it is, i'd say that that convenience of that for sure yeah um it just opened up like who I could actually talk to. So, yeah, 
but there's nothing like being in the same room and just feeling the vibes of like, you know, talking to somebody. No, it's what you talked about at that event yesterday, right? You're at an event with all these people and just the, the vibe and the excitement of what's going on. Yeah. It's so rad. To- you know? Totally. And that, you know, the, the enthusiasm of our fellow enthusiasts, right? Absolutely. You know, and everybody has their enthusiasm and, you know, some people can express it on their board in amazing ways. You know, some people express it through a camera, you know, some people express it through art, you know, some people express it through terrain, mm-hmm. right. Or running events or, you know, skativity is everywhere. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I think we're good. Do you have, unless, do you have anything else you last words or anything you wanted to add? Um, I don't know. What, what would that be? I don't know. And I'm just doing what I do. Happy to be here. I got I got this cool honor last year. Got inducted in the Skateboarding Hall of Fame. That's amazing. Along with my co-inductee was Hobie Alter. How rad is that? Wow. Was that during the COVID? Well, it it actually the day that it happened. So they kept on being me. Hey, you got to watch the broadcast today. And and they didn't tell me that necessarily I was inducted, but it was a day. Um, Hard day because at one o'clock I'm inducted in the Hall of Fame, and by four o'clock I find out Grasso died. Okay, almost a day, right? And then COVID happened; they didn't have a celebration until last fall, and they did two years together. So you were in the same one as Stropel because Stropel told me the same story. I think he got yeah. he got the news, and then he got the news about Jeff, and he was just like, "Yeah, yeah, same thing, right? Like the whole like something exciting and special, and then something you know, right." unimaginable in a sense, you know, like you weren't imagining that was happening for the day. Yeah. God damn it. Well, it sounds like they're kind of learning. I've talked to people that this last one was one of the best ones that they've just kind of shortened it up and made it like, you know, not this whole, like one guy gets up there and talks for three hours or whatever. And nobody else gets to talk and everybody else went home and you're just like, ah, like I, I, yeah, it was a lot less talking than it had been in the past. I I was accused of doing the most talking that night, but eh, it's, was, it's you know, your moment to shine. I, I had to take it. Yeah. I had to take it. No, for sure. But it's just cool to like, ha- I guess they have video tributes and stuff. I don't know. It sounded like yeah. they kind of tricked it up a little bit. And no, it was, it was, it was done really well. The six there guys did the video stuff for it. So Shout out. they're good at digging up history and digging yeah. up things, like you know, archival and that side of it. So that was great, you know, and, and it was outside. So it was comfortable in the context of the COVID world. Right. You know? And then, and then the, the event, because it was outside, there was a place in the back you could be in talking. You didn't mess up people where in the past, it was sort of like, you couldn't hear what was going on because there's too many people talking. Mm. So it was good. Well, congratulations. Yeah. You deserve it. That's for sure. And thank you. Like for real, thank you. Not just for being on the show, but thank you for all your hard work and everything you've done for skateboarding throughout the years. I mean, it's amazing. It's pretty pretty crazy when I look at it, you know, from the context of all of it, you know, whether it's like products or what I know, but right. The reality is in the the first half of the eighties, it was building ramps, it was making contests happen. You know, it was, you know, all all the other things as well, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. I used to do that that article in Transworld, technically speaking, I did for a couple of years. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, I used to just try to contribute however I could. Right. It's awesome. It's it's really 
dear to my heart, especially the pioneers and the people that like figured things out and got us to where we are today. It's just, I, I can never tip my hat enough to, you know, the, the people like yourselves that have just been in the trenches trying to keep it going and figuring it out and like making it better. Yeah. It is pretty crazy when you, when you see the people that you don't, you don't know who affects what, right? So this is probably, I don't know, 10 years ago now. Um, I went to the memorial um, for Larry Stevenson, the guy who invented the kicktail. I never knew Larry. I knew his son, you know, and, and they did Power Edge magazine in the oh, 80s. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, still did some products then, you know, that they didn't have great commercial success with, but they were there, you know, and part of it. And when I heard all of his buddies talk about him and the things that were done at that memorial, I'm like, these guys are talking about 60s stuff and early 70s. This is the blueprint for my life. Wow. Like literally it was, I didn't know who I was following. Uh-huh. You know, I, I sort of said earlier, in one way I was following Jeff Newton from Texas, you know, uh-huh. being a non-Californian doing his thing, right? Yeah. You know? But in a sense, you're you 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 can't unlearn what you learn. I have two eighth grade diplomas. You know, so you're exposed to things. You can't really unlearn it, right? It just becomes who you are. It's, it's where you work from. It's your context. And that's why young kids today on a skateboard are amazing. They're, they don't need to go learn through everything we had to learn through because they look at it and go like, oh, here's where it is. I'm going to learn from here. Yeah. <laughs> they don't even have to render video clips. I, I have a YouTube channel. All right. Well, thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm just glad we don't have any Schmidt beef. Yeah, no schmippy, no need for that. That's for sure. <laughs> All right. Be, but you know, you know, if you want to box it out, Schmidt versus Schmidt, you know, I, I'm a little bigger. You might be a little more feisty, being from the city. I don't know. Talking Schmidt, dude. <laughs> nah, no, no, no. I, I got a quick reference though. One time I hit up Muska and I, I was asking him, uh, you know, a question. I forget what it was, but it was DMing him through the Instagram. And I, yeah. I was using this, the talking Schmidt, not my personal account. And he wrote back and he was like, Paul. And he just gave me this whole like, thing. he thought I was you. Oops. So it was pretty funny. And then, Those are, and then, so you're, you're just like, you're just like ugly sticks. Oh no. Ugly sticks rails. People are like, well, you're ugly. So those weren't me. That was somebody biting me, my stuff. Ugly sticks. Oh, we had a guy in Palo Alto that made these things called G rails and they were skinny. And then they went real fat at the bottom. Yeah. I don't know if that was better or worse, but it was definitely heavier. Yeah. And we were all about light. So we kind of weren't into them. Well, that's why I got rid of rails, right? In general, if the market went to this very simplified viewpoint, like I don't need nothing extra. Well, like Kit, somebody told me to d- recently and they're like, so you bought a brand new skateboard, $55, brand new, and you drilled holes in it to put a rail in it? Like, yeah. like that doesn't make sense. Why would you drill into this new thing you just bought? <laughs> But before there were standard truck holes, when I bought my first Logan Erski, they had this aluminum jig that they put on the board to drill based on what brand of trucks you were riding. Oh, really? Because there were like 10 hole patterns. And then I, I bought tracker half tracks and those, and that, that is the whole pattern that was set forward. You know, the, the one and five eighths by two and a half. Oh. Until, until it got reset to the 2.1 we know now. Oh, so there weren't standard truck holes in the early. No, there, oh, early wow. Seventies. There were all kinds of different ones. Oh my God! Yeah, that's what. See, there's so many variables early on. Uh, yep. 
Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Hopefully I'll be able to see you in, in the real world uh, sooner than later. All right. Well, I'll see you out there then. Take care. Okay. You too. Peace. Later. Hey, you don't watch that. Watch this. This is the heavy, heavy monster sound. The nuttiest sound around. So if you're coming off the street and you're beginning to feel the heat, well, listen, buster, you better start to move your feet to the rockinest, rock steady beat of madness. One step beyond. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Schmidt. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. When you subscribe, you'll get notifications every Tuesday of new episodes the minute they become available. Also, please leave reviews in a five-star rating. It's the best way to help the show grow. All of the episodes will always remain free, but if you would like to help support the show, you can do so at TalkingSchmidt.com, where you can pick up some merchandise like t-shirts, beanies, hats, and stickers. The website has an entire archive of all of the episodes, with extra photos and videos. Email us with any suggestions, comments, or ways that the show may have improved your life at TalkingSchmidt at gmail.com. All interviews are conducted, edited, and produced by Schmitty. The intro music is Mary's Cross by the band Nature. A very special shout-out goes to the executive director, Cheryl Camisa. This is Talking Schmidt, where the Rolodex is deep, but the conversation is deeper.